Welcome to Thoughts on Record, podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Each week, we explore topics of interest relevant to mental health clinicians and consumers. That said, if you're generally interested in psychology, the brain, dynamics of human behavior, and other aspects of the incredible journey that is the human experience, you've come to the right place. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. Dr. Daryl Chow is a senior associate of the International Center for Clinical Excellence. He conducts research and workshops on the development of highly effective psychotherapists and ways practitioners can accelerate learning. He was a featured keynote speaker at the Achieving Clinical Excellence Conference in Sweden in 2018. Daryl is a co-author of the new book, Better Results, Using Deliberate Practice to Improve Therapeutic Outcomes. He is also co-author of many articles and co-editor and contributing author of The Right to Recovery, Personal Stories and Lessons About Recovery from Mental Health Concerns, and is the author of The First Kiss, Undoing the Intake Model and Igniting First Sessions in Psychotherapy. His work is also featured in two recently edited books in 2017. Daryl's blog and podcast, Frontiers of Psychotherapist Development, is aimed at inspiring and sustaining practitioners' individualized professional development. Daryl maintains a private practice in Perth, Western Australia. All right, Dr. Daryl Chow, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Speaking to you here from um, the other side of the world, Western Australia. Isn't that amazing that we can do this? I was thinking about that today. I saw a couple of news stories on Australia, and I was saying to my daughters, oh, I'm going to be speaking with someone on the podcast today who lives there. I just think that's it's kind of mind-blowing if you stop and think about it. It is mind-blowing if you just pause and you go, this is actually possible. It sure is. Oh, man, it's amazing. Well, Dr. Chow, I'm so delighted to have you on the podcast today. Psychotherapy, while a wonderful profession, is also slightly strange in that following registration as an autonomous professional, you could literally go decades providing services to clients in the privacy of your own office without another professional really ever laying eyes on you providing psychotherapy. And and in fact, I think of the practice where I'm at, there's a great deal of mutual respect among us as among us for our clinical abilities. However, the reality is that we've hardly ever seen each other in action as clinicians. And this really strikes me as such a surreal situation that would be completely alien to many other professions. All this to say, Daryl, I'm so fascinated to learn more about the clinician perceptions of competency and the promise of deliberate practice for not only improving clinical outcomes, but also clinician confidence and quality of work life. So thanks again for being here. Thanks for having me. I was kind of giggling to myself because I think you nailed it on on that point. (laughs) It is a very strange state of affairs, is it not? Well, it is. And I think, you know, um, Kay Anders Ericsson, the the, the father of um, studying expertise in various domains, uh, he mentioned this, actually. He mentioned not specifically to the field of psychotherapy, but he mentioned that one of the biggest barrier to any kind of development is the, the, the sort of privatization where everything's kind of done in a closed room setting where there's no uh, loops of feedback to, to be given to the person who is so-called performing um, either that, uh, that the particular surgery or the particular teaching or in this case in psychotherapy. Which I think is a great segue into one of my first questions, really, is that given that clinicians might be sitting in an office all day by themselves delivering psychotherapy, it's really only them, perhaps, that is uh, most attuned to what's going on for them professionally. Of course, the clients are going to be forming impressions and giving them feedback. But, Daryl, how accurate are clinician perceptions of their own competency? Well, the, the the literature is pretty clear about this, and it's not just in our field, if that's any consolation, but... Uh, we have a strong self-assessment bias. And if left to our own devices, we have to remain, you know, in a kind of uh, survival uh, mechanism. We have to be optimistic in our work. In fact, um, the late Stephen Wolfish, uh, he and his colleagues uh, did a study about rating private practitioners' uh, beliefs about their effectiveness, and most of them believe that they're better than average. And that's uh, theoretically not possible, statistically not possible for everybody to be above the 75th percentile. Uh, And then we we modeled this uh, in our other study where we could pair up with uh, people's actual 
client outcomes on aggregate. So I stress this is not like just based on one client outcome or a few. This is based on five years worth of data that we that these people have been collecting their client outcomes routinely, which is excellent. And we ask them to rank uh, their uh, effectiveness. And you know what? When we start to, to break them up into three groups, the, the first group are the ones who are the most effective, the highly effective therapists. And then the second and third group are those who are the average practitioners. The average practitioners rank themselves as if they were like the highly effective therapists, about the 73rd percentile. And this is interesting if you stop to think about this, because it not only means that the average practitioners with the sense of optimistic bias think that they are like the, the what we playfully call the super shrinks, um, the super shrinks themselves were sort of, they had a dampening effect. They were, there was a, a dose of um, professional doubt, you might say, or even humility involved in how they saw themselves. But again, you know, because of the, of the, the concepts, coaching, supervision, training, stuff that we do, I also see that practitioners are whiplashed between overestimating themselves and underestimating themselves. But I think that's because of the selection bias of people who are key to improve their work. I, I think they're, they're more likely to be uh, a little bit more dampened in, in terms of how they see themselves relative to their peers. That's a really interesting observation. I have, you know, I think about my, my colleagues who I work with, most of whom I would describe as very perfectionistic, uh, really conscientious, I would say perhaps even overly conscientious, really, really tough on themselves. Mm. Uh, I, I, it's so interesting that there would be a cohort of therapists who would have this other, other maybe optimism bias around their performance. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So your, your colleagues are probably the ones who fall into underestimating themselves because of the level of uh, doubt that they, they, they carry. And, and this could range even from um, the early careers to, to the mid-careers. You know, and I've, I've seen people who are also highly experienced who carry this level of doubt. And in part, I think, you know, Pete, like, like, like I said earlier, like what you mentioned at the uh, onset of the conversation that, you know, we, we don't get to see, we don't get to talk about what really is happening. The conversational nature of therapy, we don't get to see that performance, so to speak. You mentioned something I want to follow up on, which I think is really fascinating. Yeah. If I reflect on my own experience as an early career clinician, I would say I'm sort of staunchly mid-career at this point, and I can only imagine what late career would feel like. How do perceptions of competency change over the arc of one's career? Yeah. The perception, right? That's what you're asking. From the University of Chicago, David Alinsky, a well-renowned uh, renowned, um, uh, psychotherapy researcher, David Alinsky and Michael Ronstadt uh, did a huge undertaking of a study called How Psychotherapists Developed. They, they, they published a book about this some years ago, and, and it's a large international study. And they found that from early, mid to highly experienced seasoned uh, practitioners in terms of their career lifespan, there is an increase of what they call healing involvement. So, so healing involvement just means how engaged you are, how therapeutic you've been, how much presence you bring into the room and so on. That shows an increase in terms of their self-rating over time. So this got, got us really fascinated in, in about 2014. We, we did that study looking at how psychotherapists um, what kind of deliberate practice they do, what kind of stuff that they actually do to improve. And we wanted to understand their perceptions too. And we gave them the, the HI, the healing involvement scale to complete. And we found that healing involvement was a significant predictor of outcomes, except that it was inversely correlated. <laughs> wow. M meaning to say that the more likely you are to to subscribe to being uh, healingly involved yourself, being healingly involved, it has got a notch on the reverse direction in terms of your effectiveness. Any thoughts on the causal mechanism around that or perhaps what's going on there? I find that really fascinating. Well, me too. I mean, I, I won't put too much weight on that, as most researchers would say that uh, more studies need to be done. But, but I think this sort of coincides with other pieces 
This is literature that we've seen from uh, Helene uh, uh, Nissen Lee in in, in, uh, in Denmark. Sorry, uh, in Holland. Uh, you know, she she found that more effective therapists tend to carry this level of professional, not personal, professional self doubt. It's a level of humility that they they carry about. Uh, their views, which if you stop to think about this, it sort of makes sense, right? Because if you are really confident, then part of the the effect is that you are less likely to be working on it because your 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 competence and comp- competence and confidence sort of overlaps in 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 that way. But people who carry with a tinge of doubt, like, you know, a bit of uncertainty, they're a little bit more thirsty, a little bit more hungry to want to pursue those, those gaps that they might have. So just to get past the perception piece, I'm, it just this just kind of came up off the top of my head, but I'm, I'm wondering about it. In terms of actual clinical outcomes, how does that vary from early to mid to late career clinician? Do we have data on that? We do. In fact, um, you know, I've been collecting my own uh, uh, data since since uh, 2004, and uh, we also have big studies of data set with people collecting over time and basically asking the question, does experience make a difference in terms of client outcome? And if left to our own devices, the studies by Simon Goldberg and colleagues are suggesting that if a person says that they have 20 years of experience, it's most likely accurately denoted as one year of experience repeated 19 more times. <laughs> Which means to say that uh, we don't see a reliable predictor of experience influencing client outcome. Now, it does not mean to say that there aren't highly effective therapists who are seasoned practitioners, but there are also practitioners mid or even early who might be already pretty darn good already. I saw this on Twitter, so I don't want to put too much weight on it, but I, I saw someone basically put out the saying, clinicians should be selected, not trained necessarily. What do you think about that yeah. idea? Well, you know, Carl Rogers was said this uh, uh, way back when, you know, and he said that it's, it's important to understand the personhood before you look at the, the level of training. And I think there is some merit to this you know other studies from tim anderson's gang uh, uh, also found the same thing that the level of ability in facilitative interpersonal skill fis for short where they did this at pre-graduate training and post-graduate training and they found that uh that there are their pre-fis score their abilities to engage right their facilitative facilitative skill was already predictive of how good they are going to be <laughs> in spite of the training. So, you know, there's a lot to be said, not so much about how we select. I think that's a different conversation, which I will tag for a second. But the more important thing is, what the hell are we doing in our trainings? I want to come back to the training piece in a second. I want to ask you a question, though, though about clinician factors first. Yeah. I know when I'm supervising people, I almost always want them to read the book Reinventing Your Life by Jeffrey Young et al., it's a schema therapy book. It has a self-assessment tool at the beginning. What I really like the clinicians who I supervise to know is their psychological landscape, right? Where are the exaggerations like perfectionism or self-sacrifice or what, what have you? Do we know about what psychological factors contribute to perhaps accessing an accurate perception of one's own competency or perhaps going the other way, having a, a pathological level of self-doubt in that respect? Yeah, I, I think right now the literature is, is not thick enough for us to make conclusive statements about that. But we do know that, uh, you know, how not so much as what people's perception or what they view of themselves really matters is what they are doing that seems to be really counting for a huge factor. Now, granted, Reinventing Your Life is a great book. Uh, stuff from schemas are useful, especially when you're talking about the extremes, right? So if somebody with um, uh, with a strong schema of self-sacrificing, you know, those are things to watch out for too, right? That you don't want them to to so-called give themselves away where they, they are more likely prone to burnout or an extreme uh, self uh, subjugation where, you know, they, they don't, you know, the, the, the view of the self is always conflated with the therapy space. Uh, those things are important, I, I guess. But in terms of other characteristics, we don't, we don't know too much 
we do know a little bit more uh, about things like what how they subscribe in terms of their view of doubt. That seems to be clear from uh, Helene's work that I mentioned earlier. Attachment styles even, you know, uh, Clearly, you want a therapist to be at least secure enough to be uh, seated on the seats to to lean in, to work in the heat of strong emotions. But again, uh, that's not very conclusive at this point, too. Okay, so now that we've laid out a little bit of groundwork just around clinician competency, Daryl, can you tell me what deliberate practice is? How is it defined? Right. So I think it would be helpful to kind of create some kind of contrast so we have a bit more resolution to, to see uh, what, what deliberate practice is. So let's think about the, the word practice, right? And I will call this default practice, right? Default practice just means the way we normally think about practice. And it has four components. You know, default practice, the first one is usually led by uh, uh, a teacher or, you know, there's some kind of guided curriculum with that. And with, with the second piece on that guided curriculum, you get uh, fixed learning objectives. Like it's pretty clear what you need to learn based on what's guided from that protocol or curriculum. And then third, you get performance feedback. You get performance scores about uh, how you're doing, whether do you know your stuff, how competent you are, right? And then lastly, uh, we always say practice makes perfect, isn't it? So there's a lot of repetition involved. That is default practice. Contrast that to deliberate practice. So deliberate practice has got four tenets too. The first tenet is guided by a coach, someone who knows your work. So Pete, what you said again at the beginning is critical. Somebody who just who knows your work, not just based on what you say, but based on the aggregated outcomes and based on the actual conversational performing arts of therapy, they need to know your work. That's one. Second, there is individualized learning objectives. So this is not just uh, curriculum or protocol driven. It's very uh, specific to you on where your zone of proximal development is, where that leading edge is that you could be working on. Because it also implies not just what you need to work on, but what you need to not work on as well, that that needs to be edited out for now. So the coach needs to guide them on that, right? Am I, that makes sense? Yes, absolutely. So, so then the third piece, you know, it's not just performance feedback about how well you're doing it from a competency level. You need learning feedback. You need tight loops around uh, client-by-client level of interaction, but you also need moment-by-moment level interaction, whether some things need to be tweaked about the way you phrase certain things, uh, and also about how you're learning outside of therapy, right? And finally, the fourth piece, it's not just repetition, it's successive refinement, little iterations, little tweaks that you make along the way. So these four pieces of the coach, the individualized uh, learning objectives, the, 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 the learning feedback, as well as little successive refinements, these all come together, give you the piece about deliberate practice. But Pete, one other thing I want to make clear, deliberate practice is also distinct from clinical practice because we use the word practice as something that we do for real, right, in our work. Right. And, and clinical practice is something that we do in the therapy room. Deliberate practice is something that's done, uh, if you like, uh, uh, backstage or offstage, where, where, where it's like outside of the, where, 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 it is, where it's at. So we're both musicians. So in the jam room, basically, in the rehearsal spot. That's it. That's it. And and if I could milk the analogy even further, the it's easy to it's easy to get good at an instrument, but it's hard to get good at songcraft, right? And, and you know what I'm talking about, right? Because with instruments, uh, the 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 goal is pretty defined: the learning the scales, practicing the fingering on the keyboard, learning the rhythm, and getting better, tighter at that. You know, the 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 loops are tight. But when it comes to songcraft, it's it's like you know, the targets are vague. It's culturally dependent. It's who's listening, what kind of tribe of listeners are you going for? All these variables come into play, right? And and. 
there is no formula to this. Even Paul McCartney said this in his uh, music school they created in Liverpool. He says that, look, I, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> there's no formula for this. Is we we got a final. I'm sure there's. Of course, if you talk about pop music, there's a certain form, right? A certain kind of structure: verse, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus, type of thing. But beyond that, uh, the person comes into play. Everything comes into play, and there's so much more uh, things to work on. And sometimes we call this a wicked environment. So many questions have come up as you've laid this out. Is there an assessment component to deliberate practice? You mentioned somebody that real someone who really knows your work and also learning where to focus for, versus perhaps where you could defer effort around practice. How are those targets developed? Yeah, great question. So I see this as two levels. So if if say Pete, if you were a supervisor, I want to make sure that I, I carry a binocular lens. So so it's gonna have two views, one on the left, one on the right. And it's, it's important to have this view because if you only have one or the other, which I'm going to lay out, what's going to happen is you're going to, you're going to miss depth field percep perception. So you can't see how far actually an object is, right? And I had a time when I was uh, in the army, not, not that I was voluntary sign up, I was from Singapore. So I had to be conscripted for two and a half years. I lost one of my eyes, uh, eyesight for two weeks because of some detonating power. And I couldn't see how far things were. So if you have that kind of um, experience before, you know the subtlety of what's missing. So the two views that are necessary, one is coaching for performance, so which is a client-by-client -client type of level of work. So usually this is traditionally known as dealing with stuck cases or when a supervisee brings in a case to work with, you are usually helping them with a stuck situation. Now, in a coaching for performance environment, it's really important that we try our very best to get the client's voice into the conversation. Because if not, it is two people talking about somebody who's not in the room. And isn't that gossip? <laughs> like, So if there's any way to uh, uh, have their view, so be it their client-rated outcomes, their view of of the alliance, those things are critical pieces. And then, of course, the pragmatics of audio recording or video audio recording that helps to get to the nuance of, of things, right? So a kind of routine outcome monitoring or ROM, it's, it's really important in that piece. That's where you're monitoring the outcomes. And when you bring in to, to supervision, you can use that as a kind of client's view of how things are progressing. So the outcomes and the alliance. Then the other I, that's coaching for development. Remember, the first I was coaching for per performance. The second I is coaching for development. This is less focus about the client. It's more focus on the therapist's development. So where they are at on aggregate, you're not only looking at them one case at a time, you're looking at them when there's enough reliable caseloads to look at the data to let the data, their own data set change their mindset about their views of themselves so that there's something that can be seen externalized of them. And then the role of the coach in deliberate practice is to figure out their leading edge, what to work on, you know, uh, working on the what to work on before the how to. And I'm sure you know this, our psychotherapy marketplace is inundated with so many different kinds of how to's. But we need to figure out what to work on individually first before we jump into the how-tos. So that, that needs to be pinpointed on, based on the aggregated data and to help the psychotherapist develop. Because once they could feel that what they're working on actually has an impact on their outcomes and translating that into a climb level, there's a certain remoralization effect. There's a certain kind of boistering of their enthusiasm, maybe even inoculative of burnout. Before we get to the remoralization piece, in your experience, yeah. what is typically the hardest kind of feedback for clinicians to hear or internalize in these initial phases? Like what hits the hardest? Uh, what can be a bit sort of discouraging for clients, excuse me, for clinicians to hear? I think the hardest kind of feedback are uh, uh, those that are evaluative and personal, which also are not if not useful. And let me explain why. I think when we think about uh, critical feedback, um, 
the, we, we tend to conflate that with, okay, you really want to know? Let me tell you what you, you know, and then we tell people what we, we think. I don't think that's helpful because evaluative is based on a, a kind of um, judgment assessment of a, of a person's work. And then when you start to use very evaluative language, it's hard not for one to take it personally. And most of the time when the languaging of feedback becomes personal, you know, you feel like you have to defend yourself because you want to protect your heart, don't you? You want to put something almost instinctively there to make sure the arrow doesn't hit and make you bleed. So I think those are not helpful which which then which then begs the question then what 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 are kind of what are kind of helpful feedback I think the helpful kinds of feedback are what we can learn from the great coach uh, the basketball coach John Wooden where it's specific like hold the ball this way instead of that and when you throw push it further a little bit tie your shoelace this way, you know, he, he's known to tell his team. And, and he's, he keeps very clear uh, records of what people are learning, where they're at, wh what's next for them. There's almost a sense of directionality of where the big picture directionally for each individual in the team, but also as a collective, right? So that's a team sport. That's even, that's an extra layer of difficulty in there. But yeah, specific feedback is really critical. So if you stop to think about this, how do you give specific feedback? You got to see specific things. If someone was to embark on this process, what kind of time commitment are they looking at? What kind of logistics do they have to surround themselves with in terms of, I'm not sure if mentor is the right word or evaluator is the right word, but how does someone put together a program like this? What does it look like? Great question. I, I see this as as uh, uh, f almost four levels. You know, if you think about this in terms of uh, uh, steps of four levels that you could go by, I think the first, which is arguably the one that's most neglected, which is why people don't go any further and they do rely a lot of, of self-perceptions. Uh, the first one is integrating some use of measures, right? So integration and some use of measures is critical because it gives you visibility and it helps in your supervision work and it helps you upon when you're doing reflection as well. So integrating some use of measures where you're not only just taking some kind of symptom-specific measure, but you're measuring what is of value, which ultimately it's not just symptomatic reduction. It's about a person's well-being, right? I mean, it's how they're feeling about their life. So you do that. And I stress integration because you don't want to just take the measure and say, thank you very much, a piece of paperwork, and you file it over and you give it to Pete, the boss, to go and look at the scores. No, it's meant to be used as part of the conversation. You want to use measures less as an assessment tool and, and more as a conversational tool. So this means that you want to talk about where they're at, discuss about anything that's significantly different from before, or anything has changed. And that's where you, could you can get clued in and you can be very highly adaptive as quickly as the word go when you start the session. So that's the first level. Level two is that if you're doing this for a while and you've amassed anything for 40 to 60 cases of this, this is where it gets exciting. This is where you can develop your baseline. Because if you want to figure out where you need to go, you need to figure out where you're at first, right? So that's a real critical piece that, that if you don't have any kind of integration that you use to measure, then it's very hard to figure out where you really are at on aggregate, right? So that gives you a landscape. And this is where it gets so interesting because you start to be able to solve for patterns. You, you can start to look at your caseload and go, where are you really effective at? Where, where are you less effective at? What are some cases that, that seems to not work out so well for you? So one person I was consulting with, with she, she brought this after six months of doing this and she came and she, she we analyzed the data, we, we broke it down. And by the way, most highly empathic therapists are not really keen on numbers. So this is quite a bit of a stretch out of the comfort zone, right? But, but if they bear with it and they get some guidance with that, when they look at the numbers, it will reveal something like this lady. And what she saw was that when we started to play with the spreadsheet and we started to pass out and stuff, she saw that 
she was really, she was okay. She was doing pretty well, actually. So it was kind of a nice feeling of relief. But once we start to pass the data, she saw that she was highly effective with females, people who endorse as females. And and with the male gender, uh, she was less effective. And this was part of her suspicion, actually. And we started running around thinking about certain kinds of um, hypothesis, hunches about why this is the case and what she may need to think about differently. And one of the things that she started to play a hunch about is to, that she may need to get, her languaging may need to change a little bit when working with males a bit more pragmatic to speak, speak their metaphors a little bit more. She played around with that. So that's level two. Then level three is to identify leverage points. So remember we talk about the what to before the how to. So this is the what to here. Level three leverage point is where you need to figure out, okay, what is the one thing I need to work on? What's the right thing that I need to work on that actually has high impact and maybe, maybe even a low hanging fruit. Another clinician I was working with when we looked at the data, it turns out that uh, uh, he had a high percentage of clients, more than 30%. And this is slightly above uh, the, the benchmark average, which is about like 20 to 30, that who only came for one session. And, and he actually didn't catch his intuition about this because if a person doesn't return, uh, you're more likely to remember them in your mind, isn't it? So when we looked at the data it, it, uh, with, with no exclusion, we saw that there was a high percentage of people who actually didn't came back, didn't come back after the first visit. And we start to unpack why that's the case. And one of the things that we found out about the way he worked is that he was in, inundated with paperwork at the intake. Uh, lots of little things to clear. And, you know, the, the philosophy of how you and I or most of us were trained is to do a clinical, a thorough clinical intake, right? To gather all the information. So, then we, we helped the person to look at this and, and realize that actually one thing that we need to do instead of worrying about what we are taking, we need to focus on what we're giving people at, at, at even from the first session. So engagement levels, what people leave with, uh, impacting their prospective memory after the first session is really critical. So, you know, th th there was uh, a bit to help with this person on that. Uh, I ended up working, uh, uh, writing a book about this called The First Kiss. Uh, it's not a romance novel, although it sounds like one, uh, but it's about how we conduct the first session. So we have the level one, which is the um, integrating use of measures, level two, which is developing a baseline, level three, identifying a leverage point, and then level four, and that's the last one, is, is to de design a learning project around what you figure out to work on. So learning projects are time bound, they are specified, and we have to find ways to gather learnings from, from the field of psychotherapy, from, from outside of therapy, from all kinds of walks of life, uh, of various professional domains even, and to kind of take note, to, to pay attention to learnings as we go, once the level three leverage point is identified. This is all really fascinating, and I could see this being a really invigorating process for someone who perhaps feels that they become bored or stale in their practice. I could see this providing a, a really inter interesting and invigorating injection into their professional life. Yeah. Uh, well, I hope that people don't have to reach to the point of boredom or burnout to get there, because I think it's so important that this is baked into uh, the, the profession. And this is because in a time like where you and I are speaking and we are, most of us are inundated, right? Most of us are teetering on uh, too high a caseload, no time for, for stuff. And, and this becomes a real challenge where, where this is not part of the way that we work. And to ask more of somebody can uh, may not be may, may actually have a count, uh, counterintuitive effect. I really like that you said that because I often say to my clinical trainees, especially when they're in their practicum or residency, it doesn't really matter. I'm like the habits that you establish now are going to be the way that you practice later on. So get the habits right right from the beginning. So I, I guess what I, what I hear you saying is deliberate practice should be built into your framework from the very beginning, if possible. Totally. 
totally. And and you know this is such a huge thing. We we wrote uh, uh, better results with Scott Miller and Mark Hubble. Uh, I think about a year ago. And and one of the things that we are following up on now is we're creating a field guide, an edited book about uh, specific things that people can do. And we have Sam Mullins from UK. He wrote a chapter about this on the importance of developing habit formation around this, right? That it's all part of your daily structure that you consistently do, that you not only leave it to willpower, because if it is left to willpower, uh, you and I know, or at least I know for myself, uh, I'm, I'm usually wanting to catch a bit of a nap or take some rest after a hard day's work. And, you know, and if we have this as automated and baked into our routine, then we know that this is our commitment as promising creatures that we are committed to doing this. We are only doing this one small thing per week. So uh, we want to, we want to stick with that. And, and if, if there are clinicians out there who, who think about, okay, what's one thing I can start doing? Well, start to think about using measures in your outcome uh, in your clinical practice without uh without being how should i say pedantic about this but integrating to the way that you do therapy you know making it part of the conversation as opposed to separate paperwork that's one um secondly if you're already doing that i would suggest that you make it a habit with word constraints like twitter that at the end of a typical work week you Look through your calendar of the people you've met, the conversations you've had, and write down some therapy learnings. So this could be something that was significant that you're proud of even, or it could be a blunder, a mistake. And note that down. If you're you know, doing it on a notebook, you know, just put that down, date it, even index it with a number. And if you're doing it on a digital device, do likewise. And if you do this every week, chances are some weeks you might miss. Forgive yourself for that. And you might have probably 30, 40 notes. You, you practically develop your own Irving Yalom gift of therapy book for yourself, right? And this is so precious. And, and I've been doing this, for, you know, for the, I, I think since 2012 or 2013. And Looking back is fascinating because I have the dates and I have the index number when I look at my, my, my notes. And when I look at the header, you know, the first thing that strikes me is I don't remember what I wrote. <laughs> and then when I, when I looked into it and I go, that sounds really smart, you know, <laughs> and how can I forget this? Right. And, and one of them is a simple, I just remember one that I saw recently is don't forget to ask about how a person spend their days. You know, and, and this was something that I know probably 20, really early on, my first 10 notes, I think 2012, 2030. And, and I, why that struck me was because I remember asking one client talking about stuff and his concerns and blah, blah, blah. I really didn't get a flavor of what was going on until I said, can you give me a snapshot, like blow by blow from the moment you wake up? What do you do? How do you spend your time? Or do you kill time and so on? And I, I realized it, it revealed quite a bit of nuance that I would have taken for granted. And, and then I'm thinking about how I'm working with my clients now, fast forward close to 10 years later, that may, maybe I should be asking that from time to time, just if, if I'm lost. I think having that repository of wisdom is, prob- is so valuable. And I think it's one of the things that can make the job a little bit easier for a, an experienced clinician versus a clinician who's perhaps earlier in their career is just, you just have an enormous, I would say, data bank of experience. And I also, I call them scripts for lack of a better term. Great term. It's like pro- problem X comes up. Here's what I say. Here's script Y that I apply to the problem. And by the time you've got to 10, 15 years in, you've seen so many of the same challenges. You have something ready to go. I guess it's, you should always be reflecting on, am I being too automatic in my scripts or do those scripts need to be updated? But I do think there is something to having a repository of, of data or experience to draw upon, and, and especially in a tight corner, uh, like if someone's actively suicidal or there's a crisis or something like that. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. I really hope your listeners are paying attention to what you just say said about that because that's 
something really critical. Now, of course, this process makes the things that you do implicitly and unconsciously to become quite hyper-conscious, right? But in any model of development, if you want to raise above the okay plateau, you want to just counteract that automaticity, as Kay Anders Erickson would say, you do need to get conscious about that and then become unconscious of that again. So the cycle continues. I would just have one tweak with that. And this is something that we learned from um, our trainings with clinicians uh, in, in a particular clinical trial that we did called Difficult Conversations in Therapy. We were training therapists with uh, really sticky situations, right? And what, here's what we found. We, it's much better to, to help clinicians uh, with thinking in terms of less of what they say, but more in terms of principles of what are the mental models to hold on to when they are faced with that situation. So exactly like how you said about scripts, when X, then Y, right? But in, in thinking in terms of principles, when you think on first principles, you have an array of methods available to you, right? If you can think in that principles, when you think specifically only in the methods, you're constricted. You don't understand the governing principles maybe of what's going there. And if you, if that repertoire doesn't work out, you are less flexible to switch to another way of engagement. Well, I totally agree with that. It's like having thought through the issue in advance, having a framework in which you can flexibly apply varied strategies, depending on what you see in front of you. But I do think to be really effective, you had to have thought through these issues in advance. And I, I agree, having a, a script may not do it, but I, I think we're on the same page here. Having a framework that you sort of auto-populate in advance to understand a very complex problem can be immensely helpful if, if I've understood what you've said. Spot on. So, and also in, in our deliberate practice workshop that Scott Miller and I run, we one of the things about developing baseline other than their aggregated outcomes, we also ask people to develop their, we call it a blueprint of how they work, what they work, right? And you know what? Clinicians of all levels of experience find this really hard to spell out. All right, let, let's lay out the blueprint. How you do what you do? How do you begin? How do you go in the mid midsection of therapy? How do you close? Most people have a difficult time to explicate that because it's something that we do so tacitly, right? Like that we, yeah. So, but but again, I think that that exercise, you know, is really critical because once you have that framework, then you not only have something to refer to, but when you are trying to improve you have something to, to, to push off from and to modify and iterate. Daryl, you've laid out a lot of what I would hesitate to call the maybe intangible benefits of deliberate practice, but I just want to get sort of empirical about it for just a moment. What is the hmm. value proposition of direct practice if someone's considering this? Is, do we know if there's an effect size associated with this? Do we know if it translates into clinical outcomes, clinician quality of life, et cetera, et cetera? Great question. And at this time of the recording, we do have some research there suggesting its impact on outcomes. And one study that was done is with an agency in, in Calgary, Canada, and they've demonstrated that it does have an impact. However, the impact is like what you see of, uh, of a, a professional athlete. If you are ready at your, at your game, right? If you're really performing pretty well, the incline is just slightly improvement over time, small effect sizes over time. So it's it, it can be disheartening when you think about that. But contrast this. Remember how you were asking me about the effects of experience early on. If we don't do this, the direction of the graph is less of an incline upward and it's actually more like a slope going downwards over time. That's the effect of uh, without something that's of a concerted deliberate practice effort. And of course, if you are a beginner, the, the, the impact's much, much higher, you know, compared to, to um, not having anything specifically working on. And, you know, the, the, the thing about the default way of how we are training people, if we to really carefully reimagine this, we need to start to see this as this conversational nature of therapy. We need to get as direct as possible to where it's at 
and to start to look at the the the, the actual moment by moment type of interactions that that people have just like you know if you told me Pete that you heard a really great song uh you won't go describing it to me you would just let me listen to it won't you right so <laughs> yeah and it's the same thing here i mean like we need to find a way to deprivatize this in a confidential manner that has in mind the number one thing is that we want our clients to reap the optimal benefits and how that's true the therapist. Daryl, one last question for you. In Ontario, Canada, where I practice, we get a lot of supervision up front in our training, and we also get a year of what's called supervised practice before we transition to autonomous practice. And then after that, you're on your own. And of course, there's continuing education requirements. There's quality assurance that goes on. However, there's not a culture of deliberate practice. Why do you think this is the case, and what can be done about it from your perspective? Yeah, I think there is a little bit more proliferation around this topic of deliberate practice now, and it's going in a couple of directions. It's really exciting to see our field uh, try to to take this uh, to a next frontier about where we go. So we're we're at an early days, if you can believe it or not, about this idea of deliberate practice. But I think one, you know, the the, the way that we are training. Um, we need to get more personal. We need to get more direct, as we, we mentioned. In in the education literature, uh, they, they have a term for this, uh, of what's happening. Like, how come that students learn in a classroom? What they learn in a classroom doesn't translate into the real world, right? And I, I, I can speak for myself. I know what I learned in school um, goes in the bin. And they call this the lack of transfer, Right? lack of transfer and this is actually a huge scandal in in the learning sciences the many things that were taught uh, does not get transferred into the real world and i think this is really important especially in our field because we're talking about helping people's lives helping when people are in distress helping them to come alive helping them with life transitions and i think this is where we need to get more direct. We need to lean in and get into the heart of the conversation to help people with very specific things. As specific as, for example, how do you begin a session? How do you start? How do you develop consensus of a direction of where to go? Bruce Wampole and Zach Imel, uh did an aggregation of studies and they found that uh, so much studies right, has been done on helping clinicians with uh, the model that they are trying to learn and be in CBT, schema, ACT, and so on. But then yet the effect size on treatment modalities is close to 0 to 1%. Contrast this with goal consensus. So few studies on this, but then yet the effect size on this is probably more than five-fold of that of treatment modalities, just developing a clear focus of not just the outcome that you want to aim for with the client, but the process goal. Is there an agreement about what exactly are we working on? Is it something of a complex trauma? Is it something about uh, the schemas that they hold? Is it something about the, their relation, the current relationships in their life, you know, and, and so on. There's a huge array of different views to take the process go from. But clear directionality is really critical. I, I saw, I saw, uh, I, I don't know, you know, this website, but because um, I, I was preparing for our Frontis Friday newsletters, is a newsletter we, we, we give out to practitioners every Friday. And one of the topics was on clients' view. And I was looking at this website called Quora, Right and Quora's is basically yeah you know that one and they're asking questions and there was one question that really um, uh, got stuck in my mind. The question was, um, the, this is from the client. The client said, "I went into therapy and I decided that I wanted to hear. Uh, I didn't. I didn't have a problem in that session, and um, the therapist had no clue of where to go. Like." Is this the norm for, for therapists not to have any direction of where therapy should go, even though the person has known me for two years? I don't know. That's really interesting, right? Does this give pause to go, 
yeah, wait a second, what's going on here? Right? Like, do we just let people talk? Do we do we have a rough map? We, not that you need a full blow by blow um, uh, piece of pinpointing where to go, but in terms of a compass direction of where's north from here. Yeah, I was gonna say like like a vision, perhaps even if a, it's roughly defined or low resolution of perhaps where this person could end up, and preferably informed by a collaborative conversation around that shared vision of where you want to go. Totally. Well, Daryl, thanks so much for your time today. If people want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you? Yeah, so you could go to uh, my website at darylchow.com. That's D-A-R-Y-L-C-H-O-W.com. And if you want to look specifically for stuff that you and I have been discussing, just go to darylchow.com slash frontiers. So there we have um, blogs a whole archive about this topic from how to learn deeply about deliberate practice about feedback informed treatment about self-care and so on uh, that's there and we've got some um, podcasts nowhere near as prolific as what you've been doing Pete uh, but we have got some uh, in, in our archive there uh, and if you're keen on this topic, you could click on a, a subscribe to to that because there are videos and uh, newsletters that comes out every Friday uh, on five tips that we will recommend uh, each Friday. And of course, check out any of the the books that we have done with my colleagues um, that we have talked about all these stuff. Great. Well, again, Daryl, thanks so much for joining me from literally halfway around the world. I've really enjoyed the conversation today. I wish we could chat more. Perhaps we'll get a chance to chat again in the future. It's great to, to chat with you, ask good questions. Thank you so much. Take really good care. And you. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.